So, I'd like now to start again, uh, because this time the uh, recording is recording, and I'd like to greet all the people listening in by podcast. There are quite a number of people out there waiting for this retreat, vicariously participating in it all over the world. I don't know how many, but I want to welcome all of you who are listening by way of the podcast to welcome you to this retreat. Um, and I would like you to know that you're very much in my heart and mind. Uh, have you very much, very, I'm very consciously aware of you uh, today, right now, and through this retreat as well. And so I wish you all well in the practice. I'm very glad that you can listen in. Uh, this is, I have various reasons that I continue to guide these eight-week retreats, but I have to admit, knowing that I can be a direct benefit to 40, 50 people, but indirect benefit to some hundreds outside, really gives me a lot more incentive and inspiration for doing so. I just, I just love it that with the same amount of effort, excuse me, more people can derive benefit. And so, now speaking to all of you, the 50, we have about 50 here in the room, and then however many may be listening by podcast, either like pretty much, pretty close to real time. I mean, it's, people are just follow, some some people are in retreat, just following this retreat from afar. Others will be listening to this, uh, listening to these teachings, the meditations, the discussions, at their own leisure. So, I'd like to now. I've just given just kind of logistical introduction for people in this retreat, in this place at this time, and now I'd like to give a brief introduction to the contents of what we'll be focusing on. So now we get to the juicy part. Uh, now, I'm assuming that all of you have brought with you a copy of this text. Is that correct? That's good. Everybody's well prepared. So, um, lineage. Um, during, during the period 1990 to 19, 1997, uh, right during the period, much of that, I was in graduate school at Stanford. But I was able to, I think, get through graduate school happily because during that same period, from 1990, 1990 to 97, uh, I had the tremendous good fortune, the privilege, and the honor of serving for that period as uh, the primary interpreter for my primary Dzogchen Lama, Venerable Gatru Rinpoche. I'm very happy to say he's still alive and well, very old. He's about 90 by now. Um, but I lived right near him, and on a weekly basis, maybe it was twice a week, I can't remember, maybe it was twice a week, I was translating for him, and he was giving a lot of teachings in the Bay Area. And so I translated for all of his teachings. And everything he taught, every text he taught, I translated. And then, of course, I'm, I'm interpreting his teachings. And so his oral commentary was, every, everything he taught, his oral commentary was transcribed, edited. So as the years went by, we just came out with one book after another book after another book. Because uh, I just felt the texts that he was teaching, they're all meditation manuals, they're all what's called menach. Pith instructions, exactly designed for practice, not for people who want a great erudition, get degrees as Kempo and Geshe or a PhD and so forth, really designed for practice. So going right to the core, pith instructions. That's all he taught for those seven, for those seven years, at least in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I was and serving as his interpreter. So um, this was one of the earliest texts that he taught. And this is uh, my, my teacher, Gertrude Mbuche, he holds multiple lineages. One is from the Beyul, Beyul tradition of the Nyingma order. Uh, and so it's, and it's a tradi tradition going back to Kamachame Rinpoche, the author of this text from the 17th century, that is drawing on both the Mahamudra and the Dzogchen tradition and integrating these two exactly as this text does. 
So this text is called, simply called Chanzhou Songju, the union of Tuji Chimpu Sung Chanzhou Songju, the teachings of the great compassionate one, Avalokiteshvara, on the union of Mahamudra and Mahasandhi, or the great perfection. Uh, Kama Chamerumachi was really a patriarch, a great, a great master of both the Dzogchen and the Mahamudra. Uh, he's, of, the, of course, of the Karma Kagyu lineage, but again, very much of the Nyingma, the Beiyu lineage in, in Nyingma, and a consummate scholar, extraordinary scholar, great erudition, but also a very deep meditation master, and he wrote uh, not only scholarly texts, but uh, a number of texts that were purely for practice. Uh, and so this is this may actually be his primary one, and it's quite long. Um, and Rinpoche didn't teach all of it, Gyatso Rinpoche, when he was teaching there in San Francisco. Um, I, I, how do you say, established or requested and was granted the formal guru-disciple relationship with him in 1990. I knew him before then. I was kind of checking him out. Maybe he was checking me out as well. And then, in, just to give a little bit of history, then in 1990, I had just moved to Stanford. I was doing my graduate studies there. Uh, in San Jose, which is right nearby, uh, he gave teachings translated by his principal interpreter, who was before me and since then has been his ter- principal interpreter, close companion, devoted disciple, and one of my oldest and dearest friends, Sangye Kondo. A very, very dedicated Dharma student and very knowledgeable and a superb translator. Uh, so she was interpreting, and the teachings were on Dream Yoga. This was 1990. And I heard those teachings from Gyatrodamuchi, and I said, Oh, this man's my lama. You know, because the way he taught it went right into the heart. It really, he made it practical, accessible, inviting, experiential. I'd received teachings on Dream Yoga before, but it always seemed like it was way above my head, unreachable, way, way up there, you know, for advanced yogis, which. I wasn't, am not. Uh, and so the, the relationship was established then. And then, uh, so I won't go into a lot of detail there, but then he wound up moving down from Oregon and having as his home for quite a number of years um, a place out, outside of Stanford and up on the hills above Half Moon Bay. So uh, a town on the, on, the, on the coast, of course. And uh, during the last two years there, from 95 to 97, I actually lived with him. Uh, just just across on the same property. And so then he gave a lot of teachings during that time. I did more translation work with him. But this is the first large text that he taught, and which I translated the text itself and his oral commentary. And I just felt the text itself and his commentary were so valuable that it just felt not right for me just to receive these teachings and practice it. And then anybody, it was about this number of people, 40, 50 people in the room, it didn't feel right that there could be such a splendid text and elucidating commentary, and only 50 people would get benefit. And that's it. I, I just couldn't do that. And so when I saw the quality of text, which he commented on line by line, making it crystal clear, I had no choice. I had to translate it. And then his commentary was there. And then other people pitched in. They're doing all the editing, all the hard work, where I was just translating the text and then doing the oral commentary. And so, but on this text, this you're seeing the, this text. You're we're skipping about the first third. It's a very large text, and the first third or so, it's many pages, is all devoted to the preliminary practices, the mundo, mundo, hundred thousand vajrasattva and guru yoga and so forth and so on, the classic mundo. And um, Rinpoche just told me right at the very beginning, well, teachings on the mundo how to practice Vajrasattva, Guru Yoga, Mandala offering, and so forth. It's widely available. There's plenty of teachings on those from multiple traditions. We don't really need 
to have another translation of that material. Not that it's not important, it is important. But maybe that's not the best way for us to spend our time here. So he said, I'm going to skip it. I'm going to skip those, just because, not again, not because it's not important, but it's widely available already. And this is, you know, very much in tune with other teachings on the same topic, by other teachers, traditions, and so forth. And so he, as you can see from the text, he goes right into content and, and goes right into the heart of the main practice, the muji, the muji. And the muji, after giving a bit of background, as you can see, I think, in the opening chapter, he goes right into stage of generation, stage of generation practice. And it's, uh, in, in terms of my very limited reading, because I'm not really very erudite, I get the appearance of it, but it's a false appearance of being really, really knowledgeable of Dharma. I'm really not. Uh, when I think of my own teachers, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of a total amateur, a lifetime, lifelong amateur. Um, and I'm, I'm not kidding, I'm not being humble, I'm just telling you straight, you know, this is the way it is. Um, but what was the point there? Yeah, I've not seen any other presentation of stage regeneration in my very limited reading that presents it in this way. This is the great Kamachameru Mujay. Great, great scholar, great renowned. And he was, so I understand, he was, a, of course, he was a contemporary of the fifth Dalai Lama, the great Gyawangaba, the great fifth. And what I had heard, and I believe it's true, he was something of a, of a guru, a mentor uh, to, the, to the fifth Dalai Lama, who was very keenly interested, I mean, actually very devoted to Dzogchen. Um, and so there's a connection there, which makes me happy because my root Lama is, of course, his holiness Dalai Lama. And that's been true since 1971, so a long time. So Kama was a man of great stature during his time. And um, so be, interestingly enough, and I'm not seeing this elsewhere either, before going into shamatha, basic shamatha, he's already teaching stage regeneration practice. So generally you think, wait, wait a minute, shamatha is more basic, why don't you teach that first? But he didn't, and for good reason. But as he's teaching this, this self-generation, where you're actually generating yourself as Avalokiteshvara, the embodiment of enlightened compassion, uh, normally, almost invariably, if you're engaging in a self-generation practice, you should have an empowerment first. That's just normal. You get the empowerment, the transmission, the teaching, wang tit lung, you receive all three of those. But he said, this is an exception. He set up the Avalokiteshvara practice. He said, this is mangchu. This is a public dharma. This is a public dharma. So if you have the opportunity to receive an empowerment, uh, an Avalokiteshvara empowerment, and there's various varieties of them from a qualified lama, uh, that's very good, excellent, go for it. If you have a good connection, you have faith in the lama, the lama's qualified, absolutely. That's the classic way of doing it. But he said, in this particular case, it's not indispensable. So he's giving these teachings, it's quite a beautiful chapter, really, on the Avalokiteshvara stage regeneration, very, he gives a couple of little sadhanas, very short, to the point, frankly, really sweet, inviting. You don't get caught up in a lot of liturgy that goes on and on and on and on and on. When is it going to be over? No, it's short. It's over. You know? <laughs> so pay attention while it's there, because it doesn't last very long. Because uh, it's really, obviously, focusing on doing the meditation and not simply doing a ritual and getting to the end of it. right? And so that's the way I will teach it. I'm not going to be giving any... Uh, Avalokiteshvara empowerment here. He's saying this is public dharma. So that's what I'm passing on. And when Gatrit Muji gave all these teachings on this, this, and then a kind of an, uh, an uh, what's it called? Uh, addendum, an ad- a long addendum, which was published under a separate title, Naked Awareness, where he gives the whole path. 
what, what comes here is simply it's preceded by the preliminary practices, and then there's this. And then it's finished. So the end of this book is the end of the book. And then he says, well, on the other hand, it's called gapture, an addendum. He said, well, let's go through that again. You know, and then he gives, well, I don't know, 200, 200 pages more of teaching, but he takes a different approach. You know, and so it's kind of very complementary. So when, when Gajardhambachi finished teaching this, then he went right into the, the addendum, uh, or appendix, but a long appendix, and it was so marvelous. It's really, really good that I couldn't help it. Once again, I, I translated it, translated the commentary, and that was published as a book, Naked Awareness. And that's what I'll teach next year. When we hold our eight-week eight retreat next year in Tuscany, uh, then we'll be focusing on that. We'll, I'll precede it with the, a, short, a short text by the Pension Lama, who was a contemporary of the Fifth Dalai Lama. So all that, that great 17th century. Uh, because that was the first Mahamudra teachings I ever had was in the Glupa tradition. But it's a union of Kagyu and, and Gelu. So I'll teach that first. And then we'll go to Kamachamed, who kind of this union of Kagyu and Yima. So I love to, love to do practices that are unifying, that show the harmonious interrelationship of these different lineages. Um, and so... So that's where he starts out. And so I think you, you've, you've read ahead, you've checked it out. So he goes to the stage of regeneration, then a detailed chapter on various modes. He gives a whole variety, like a smorgasbord, of different methods of shamatha. Then the next chapter, I'd have to say, is simply one of the most brilliant chapters I've ever read in Buddhism. I mean, I was awestruck by it. The practice, the, the, uh, the chapter on Vipassana, Vipassana on the nature of the mind. It's, it's stunning. It really is stunning. So that's going to be very, very core, very central to what we're doing here, of going beyond simply observing thoughts or resting in awareness of awareness and really starting to probe into, start to shatter the reification, the reified superimpositions that we superimpose, that we project upon our own mind streams. Very powerful stuff. It, as I was reading through it, and Gatrodamuchi giving us guidance step by step by step, as he... Um, as the author is, as you'll see, you've seen his style, he's simply quoting one source after another. I can't remember the term, but it's something like a bouquet, where he's not simply expounding, giving his own narrative, but he's, he's drawing, it's like, like, like making a, um, like a bouquet. He said, well, Ranjan Dorji said this, and now Orgyanomachi said this, and this, and Tulopa said this, and Nagarjuna said this, and putting it together, he said, whoa, that's a beautiful bouquet because he puts them all together. And you don't really that much hear his own distinctive voice, but he's the one putting together the flower arrangement, and he's the one providing commentary and elucidation. And so we'll get up to, but not include, the teachings on the Tutgela, the direct crossing over. I simply see no need or great value in teaching that in this context. Uh, I could mention also that Rinpoche taught this, uh, this and the subsequent, the, uh, the naked awareness, he did not give an empowerment. He simply gave it straight. And then when he'd finished these two, this one and Naked Awareness, then he went right into, it's called in Tibetan, Jito Gumbarandu, uh, Padmasambhava's teachings on the six bardos. And that's the whole path. And he taught that whole text without giving an empowerment. And he told people coming that if you have faith in these teachings and you'd really like to practice them, that even if you're not Buddhist, you're welcome to come. And he taught the whole path. So different lamas have their own orientation. Some lamas are very traditional, very strict, you know, and others 
Uh, I think especially those who have been living and teaching in the West for a long time, like Gyatso Rinpoche has been living and teaching in the West since 1972, a long, long time. So in my observations, those who have spent a lot of time really learning Western mindset, way of life, proclivities, abilities, limitations, tend to be a bit more progressive. And lamas who are also equally splendid lamas, but not so much contact, I tend generally find they're a bit more conservative. But it's simply, but the point of this is, and I'm very delighted with it, there's no pope of Tibetan Buddhism. The Dalai Lama is not the pope. He doesn't claim infallibility. He doesn't tell all the, he never tells Sakyati Zinabuchi or Gyawakamapa and so forth. Wouldn't even dream of it. What can you teach? What can't you teach? Are you teaching authentic? Inconceivable, you know. So no, we don't have a pope in Tibetan Buddhism. Which means we have a lovely diversity. That's and a rich and healthy diversity. Many of the greatest teachers are monks, and a number of them are not monks. Many are men, and there's some absolutely marvelous women teachers as well. And so, in this regard as well, some lamas are much more conservative in this regard, some more progressive, liberal, call it what you will. Gyatso Rinpoche, where he falls on that spectrum, is definitely more on the progressive, liberal side. And I'm simply following that lama. So I'm not, I'm not any, I don't think I'm any more liberal than he is. I'm really following in his footsteps. And I'm following, the, above all, in the footsteps or seeking to yeah, follow the path of my root lama, his holiness Dalai Lama, who's been training Galupa primarily and Yingma extensively, as well as Sakya and Kagyu to some extent. So, we'll be coming that, but not up to the Tutgyal, but the Mahamudra and how it interfaces with Dzogchen, Kamachamadambaji himself addresses that topic. So that will become clear. And if I see some real nuggets in this essay that I'll, I'll be translating over the next week or two, or three, I don't know, uh, then I'll share with you, happy to share them with you. Um, so in that regard, yeah, something really important. So we're skipping the preliminaries. Uh, some people who kind of casually glance in my direction in terms of the way I teach, uh, I've heard people say, oh, Alan, he's, he's starting something. He's, he doesn't think the preliminaries are important. He skips the preliminaries and just goes into the higher teachings. That's never been true. It's never been true. I've never skipped the preliminaries. But the question is, what are the preliminaries? Is there, is there only one set that is one size fits all? 100,000 of this, 100,000 of that, 100,000 of this. No, that's one set of preliminaries. So let's spend a little bit of time on that. How far back does it go, the insistence on doing 100,000 of this, 100,000 of that, you know, before you can even start you know, uh, receiving the higher teachings of the stage of generation or Mahamudra Dzogchen? And the answer is I don't know. But from what I can tell, because I've had my ears open for some years now, that particular format and also the format of doing three-year retreats could maybe doesn't go back more than the 19th century. It's fairly recent. I heard that Pachodramachi was Pachodramachi, the great Pachodramachi, extraordinary Dzogchen Yamalama, that he took quite a seminal role there of formalizing it a bit, formalizing the preliminary. So you, you start them and you finish them. You actually know you got something done because you did 100,000 of this and it's hard work and you move through it and so forth. And then doing a three-year retreat, that's hard work. You know, and uh, you get introduced to this practice. Maybe probably do the preliminaries again. Maybe some Dharma protector. Definitely stage of generation. Maybe six yogas. Maybe stage of generation completion in Kala Chakra. Maybe it's Vajrayogini. Maybe it's Chakra Sambara. Maybe it's Yamantaka. There are different ways of doing these retreats. But the formalization of you know sets of five and then three retreat. Um, 
I've had a fair number of teachings now from Pamela Sambhava. He never mentioned any numbers doing 100,000. I've had a, a transmission on Ledip Lingba's entire path, the Chitsun Yingtik, it's called, the heart essence of, of Chitsun, Chitsun Singer Wanchu, great Dzogchen master. And he never mentioned any numbers. Uh, and so I'll say, first of all, do I have respect and reverence for the tradition, this particular tradition, of doing sets of five and then three, three retreats? The answer is yes, I do. I respect it, I revere it. For a very simple reason, it's helped many, many people. For many people, that format of doing, you know, doing this quite methodically, 100,000 Vajrasattva, 100,000 prostrations, and so forth, has been very beneficial. So why would I want to criticize that? It's like medicine. If it's worked, and it's worked for many, many people, there's nothing to criticize. Right? But it is also true, it's an objective fact, that this format, this way of formalizing into sets of 100,000, Vajrasattva, the, the visualization and the liturgy, the, the, the recitations and so forth, that format undoubtedly was created by Tibetans for Tibetans. That's just a fact. And Tibetans who are raised, especially in pre-communist China, Tibet, they're raised with Omane Pemehum. You know, they get Omani Pemi home with their mother's milk. They're raised in Dharma. They're, they're living, they're breathing in a community of Dharma. It's not to say it's a pure realm. There are rotten people in Tibet like any other place. But it was overwhelmingly a very Buddhist country with one monastery for every, for every thousand people. That's pretty remarkable. Six million people, 6,000 monasteries. Tell me another country on the planet in recorded history that had that. I think you will not find it. So this was an exceptional country. It was no Pure Land, no Shangri-La, no Utopia. But there was no place like it, where 6,000 monasteries were 6 million people. Some monasteries, 8,000 monks, 10,000 monks, you know. And then yogis all over the place. You know. And I was just, I spent, I'm rambling a little bit here, but it's, I enjoy it. Uh, just a couple of months ago, I was in Santa Barbara, we hosted a remarkable lama, there are two abbots of this extraordinary Dharma community out there in Kham, in a place outside of Sertar, in the little village of Sertar. I've been there. And it's called Larungar. Larungar, established by the great Tibetan yogi, Kempo Jime Pinsol. And he started in 1980. By the late 1990s, there were 10,000 monks and nuns there. Then the Chinese bulldozed about 70% of the buildings. Didn't kill anybody, but bulldozed it. Cut down to 3,000. That was during, during, during the first decade of the century. And now, take that frown off your face. It went from 3,000 now it's to 40,000. 40,000. It's a city. And it would be bigger, except for the Chinese government said, you can't, they drew a boundary around it. <laughs> said, no bigger than this. And it's packed. It's packed. About 10% of them are Han Chinese. The other 90% Tibetan. All four schools. And the two, they have a kind of a council of Kempos, a little bit like Nam, uh, Namderling, something like that. A council of Kempos. It's a remarkable place. I can go into a long tangent there. But the simple point I wanted to make was one of the two principal abbots. We hosted him in Santa Barbara just a couple of months ago. And I had the, the, oh, the great pleasure of just sitting down. We had about six hours of one-on-one -on -one conversation together. And uh, he, this, this abbot, Kempo Tsutim Lotu, out of his, with his own money, he purchased some land uh, about two hours outside of the, the big Dharma community. Beautiful rolling hills, heavy forests, and so forth. He purchased land, and with his own money, built 30 meditation cabins. And he said about half of them are full right now. 
And I said, well, if somebody wants, you know, if some well-prepared student would like to come there and spend, you know, years in retreat, do they have any problem, you know, who's going to pay for them? It doesn't cost much to support a monk or nun in full-time retreat, but it's not nothing. And do they have a problem? He said, oh, no, no, no. The nomads there, if they, and if they know but somebody's coming in to be going to full-time retreat, they're just delighted to, you know, take care of them. That's what I call a civilized country. The people who really want to devote themselves full-time to practice, they just don't have to give, give a second thought about where will I stay, what will I eat, who will take care of There will be, because the community, the society, knows this is their best investment for the future of their own civilization. Support people, fully devote themselves to virtue. What gets better than that? And they're cheap. <laughs> it doesn't cost much to support somebody living in solitude with hardly any mundane needs, living just on a bit of food. And these cabins have solar panels. <laughs> modern lama. And so that was all a tangent to something. Yeah, yeah. So, how do you say, preliminary practices, coming back to that. So by Tibetans, for Tibetans, and it's worked many, many times for Tibetans. And I've been watching Buddhism in the West, Buddhism in India practiced by Westerners for more than four decades now. And I'll tell you a fact that not all, but many Westerners who are then told, oh, before you can go any further, you have to do these preliminaries. They go, okay. And they grind themselves, they grind their way through it. Oh, I'm almost finished my Vajrasattva, then I have to do mandala offering. Of course, I don't believe that Mount Meru exists, but I'll offer it 100,000 times anyway. (coughs) Mount Meru, Santa Claus Village, the Tooth Fairies, Bugs Bunny. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it. They don't believe that Mount Meru exists at all. Who's ever seen it, you know? But they have to do it. So one person, I was teaching meditation, she was in a retreat that I led, she said, she was very devout. She'd been practicing a long time. But she was grinding her way through these five preliminaries. And, when, and she was doing this during my retreat, the eight-week retreat. And, she's, and she was in the midst of doing her mandala offering. And she just told me very candidly, Oh, Alan, after I've been doing it for a while, I just feel like I'm throwing rocks at a pan. You know, a hundred thousand times. <laughs> and so I just don't see any point in that. Do I see a point in engaging the preliminary practices, doing under thousand? You do it doing three. The answer is definitely yes, with no question. Is there a point? Yes, if you have the faith and the reverence and the desire to engage in the practices. And if you don't, I think you're engaging in a dry, empty, barren ritual that has no meaning for you or anybody else. So therefore, I think we have to be a little bit creative, of thinking what are the, the preliminaries all about? And it's very easy. Sakjang is for accumulating merit and purifying the mind stream. And if you're throwing rocks at a pan while reciting something in a language you don't even understand, exactly what, how much merit do you think you're accumulating with that? And is your mind really being purified in any way that you have any indication is actually true? And so it's just, I think, a time to be traditional and practical. And that is, I have not the tiniest, remotest desire to start my own tradition, the Alan Wallace tradition. Ugh. No interest whatsoever. At the same time, in order to engage effectively in these more advanced practices, such as stage of generations, such as Mahamudra, Dzogchen, the great lamas have all said exactly the same thing. These preliminaries are enormously important. And boy, well, I'm not going to go against all the great masters here in this little pipsqueak. But the point is to purify the mind and to accumulate merit. Well, if we look at Shantideva, guided Bodhisattva way of life, 
He's saying, what purifies the mind like, like the, the conflagration, the fire at the end of an eon, like a supernova that just extinguishes everything into nothing? Bodhicitta. If you want to purify your mind and you want to accumulate merit, why would you think about doing something besides bodhicitta? Compare actually cultivating bodhicitta to simply reciting a liturgy hundred thousand times or doing some calisthenics while your mind is wandering all over the place and your mouth is going blah, 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 and you're getting some real cardiovascular exercise, which do you think is purifying your mind more? Really sitting down and cultivating bodhicitta or going through the calisthenics of 100,000 prostrations? And I'm not putting down doing prostrations. I am suggesting there may not be a whole lot of value apart from physical benefits. If your mind is wandering, your mouth is just running on and on, just reciting something because you have to do it. You know? So there's one. For purification and for accumulating merit, cultivating bodhicitta is up there at the top of the peak. And the other top of the peak is ultimate bodhicitta. Meditating in emptiness. You know. In order to do that, you need to have a mind that is serviceable. And yet a serviceable mind, sem lesurunga, with shamatha, which is widely overlooked, disregarded, minimalized, skipped, totally weird. You know? <laughs> and so, so for years now, for many, many years, I've been teaching the shamatha, the four immeasurables. Shamatha is make your mind serviceable. The four immeasurables, which are the basis for developing relative bodhicitta. The four applications of mindfulness, timanyashaji, as the basis for developing insight into emptiness. It gives you a foundation, especially if you go to Theravada and Mahayana approach. Real foundation. And then dream yoga. Dream yoga is kind of nighttime vipassana, but with a daytime practice, it's daytime vipassana as well, going into madhyamaka, into teachings and emptiness, antidependent origination, viewing all phenomena as being like dreams. Well, what better way to you know, start becoming lucid in dreams? And then I've, and then I've been, for, for years, been giving introductions to Dzogchen. So I think for really purifying the mind, this is a very practical way. And it's not instead of doing prostrations, guri, and so, so forth, but it's something where we won't get caught up in the ritual because it's all content, right? So on this theme, I'd kind of like to wrap this up pretty quickly now. It's getting old, and a lot of you may be still jet-lagged. Um, I'm not going to be going over the, the, the material that Rinpoche never taught. I've, by the way, I've done all the five preliminaries. I've done all the five sets of 1,000. I did that while I was under Gatrodomuchi's immediate guidance, and I did it according to this tradition. Because uh, then I, I was actually preparing for receiving teachings on the Tsalung, uh, and the practice of Duma, and so forth. And so I did it. So I'm not just an outsider critiquing it. But we're not going to be covering that material, which I've said is very important, but we want to go for content. So, I'm not going to skip the preliminaries here either. I never have. I'm just focusing on what I think are the really central preliminaries. And then what I've just found, by the way, you know, having led these eight retreats for a number of years now, some people come in, and then a number of names come to mind, people coming up, and they're just quite fresh, new to Dharma. They come to an eight retreat, and they really like kind of the just going right into the shamatha and so forth and not all that devotional and ritual stuff. But I found again and again and again, because some of my students have now been in retreat for seven years, is the deeper they go, the longer they go, the more traditional they become. <laughs> and they say, oh, I'd like to spend more time contemplating the four thoughts that turn the mind. That's really powerful. Oh, I found I really want to do Vajrasattva. I'm really wanting to do prostrations now. I'd like to go much deeper into, into Guru Yoga. Oh, but it's it. I want to linger there longer. Now that makes me happy. That's not because I'm pressuring them, or have you finished your 100,000 or 10,000 or this or that. Just let it coming from inside. 
And then, you know, reading words of my precious teacher, was my perfect teacher, reading Lumbrim, and going to really very kind of hardcore, traditional, awesome literature, and really wanted to practice that. But because it's coming from the inside. And then, they have the faith and the aspiration, then I say, oh, I always say the same thing. Go for it. Oh, Alan, what would you think I would do 100,000 prostrations? What would you think if I really spend a lot more time really focusing on Guru Yoga? I always say the same thing. Go for it, Absolutely. But start, I mean, the, the way, I mean, I still love Dharma, I still I love practicing, there's nothing I want to do more. My enthusiasm is there. Because that's what I did from the beginning. I devoted myself to practices for which I felt enthusiasm. And not always, sometimes I did it because I needed to. I didn't really enjoy doing the 100,000 mandala offering, but I got through it. Mm-hmm. And actually, I do believe in Mamaru. I'm a total weirdo. <laughs> I do. I do believe in Mamaru and the Four Continents. But that's another story. <laughs> so, what to do? What to do? Because Kamachamana Bhushe preceded this with, I don't know, 200 pages of teachings on the preliminary practices. Well, what I'm going to do here is, this is going to be our core, this is going to be our backbone for the eight weeks. But, as I did last year, and I did the year before, and I think I did the year before, as the weeks flow by, I'm going to be augmenting this with outside material just to kind of flesh it out a bit. You know? And there's some utterly, I just have to say, sublime teachings on the true essence of the preliminary practices for anybody who's venturing into Vajrayana practice in general. You know? And that's what we're going to be coming. We're not going to skip the preliminaries. Not here. We're not going to go directly to stage of generation. We'll spend a bit of time on the preliminaries. But with no liturgy, no numbers, just essence. So then you're either practicing it or you're not. But you can't fool yourself. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm 50,000 through. I, yeah, yeah, whatever. 50,000. You know, Shantideva said, if your mind's wandering and whatever's coming out of your mouth, meaningless. You know? So, I don't want to give away this. I don't want to give, the, give away the big surprise. <laughs> but um, three outer preliminaries, three common preliminaries, which are powerful, and three uncommon preliminaries, which are more powerful. And I'm, re- I'm relying upon Dujumlingpa. Dujumlingpa. Padmasambhava. By way of Dujumlingpa. Padmasambhava. Tsoke Doji, the Lake Vajra. That's the one that really goes to my heart. I mean, this does, all of this does. This one really straight. And in his writings, multiple writings, uh, he doesn't talk about doing 100,000 prostrations, mandala offering 100,000. He makes no reference to it at all. But he does repeatedly come to these uh, three common preliminaries, which are indispensable. He said, and he says that these are indispensable. You know? And then three uncommon preliminaries. And they're, they're demanding. They're deep. If you really embrace, if you let your mind be absorbed or absorbed into these, they will change your mind. You'll not have to wonder about whether, you're having, whether your mind's becoming you know, purified or not you will see your mind becoming purified. Because your way of viewing reality will shift. So that's nice. You see it for yourself. So we're going to start there. That's where we'll start. Very soon. And as we always do, for all of the 80 degrees, I'm going to be teaching shamatha, right? Kind of, be, kind of make the baseline. Shamatha, make the mind serviceable. From shamatha, preliminary practices. From shamatha, state regeneration. From shamatha, elaborated shamatha. Uh, from Shamata Vipassana, Shamata Mahamudra. Right? So that's what these 
Gyatra Dhammachuri long ago uh, authorized me to encourage me to teach these, teach actually everything that he taught me, which is kind of a lot. Uh, in retrospect, the seven years that I was with him in the Bay Area, I see as being just absolutely exceptional. Because I was coming from 20 years of training. I'd, I'd already been practicing, kind of study, practice full-time for 20 years, from 1970 to 1990. And uh, Rinpoche just breathed fresh air, just a breath of fresh air, just kind of reinvigorated, like being reborn again. You know, another whole, oh, I'm ready to go, you know, like finishing one marathon, ready to run another one, you know? And all he gave me for all of these years was just pith instructions. He never taught me to become a scholar of Nyingma tradition, and I'm not. I'm really not very knowledgeable at all. He just taught me pith instructions, pith, 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 all the way through, only pith instructions. And um, he taught me just one text after another, guiding, 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 all oriented around a central theme, which I was already captivated by, and he just got me further captivated by it. And that is the notion of path, of lam. And lam means something very specific, very clear. It's not just practicing dharma. There's a beautiful prayer that Lama Chanjub has in his center that uh, I can't quote it verbatim, but may my, may my dharma turn to the path. May my dharma practice. You're, you're practicing virtue, good. That's very good, much better than practicing nothing or non-virtue. But you can be practicing virtue, you can be practicing meditation, practicing a wide variety of virtues, without it actually turning into a path. You're just getting a whole bunch of good karma, which is great. And then the karma will ripen, you'll have nice fruition, and then that fruition will be gone, and then what? I'm not quite sure. Path, lam, the fourth noble truth, lam, is not just practicing dharma. As I love to say, I think it's true, Gautama did not leave home to practice dharma. He could have been a marvelous king, and a father, and a husband, and you know, like all of that, and been you know, just an incredibly virtuous king. And he didn't. He did not leave home to practice dharma. He left home to find a path to irreversible, perfect liberation and awakening. No, no lesser than, no, nothing less than that. And so, this is what Rinpoche was teaching. And this is all about path. And it's a path laid out, right to, right to rainbow body. And then Rinpoche went through natural liberation, uh, path all the way through. Then he taught me Vajra essence, path all the way through. And so, that's really, really kind of the primary reason I'm still teaching is there are so many very good Dharma teachers. Um, but I don't hear a lot of them really emphasizing path in a very practical way. It's there in the background. But often I think Westerners at least, and perhaps a lot of Tibetans as well, just wind up with a whole bunch of practices. And that's really good. But what about a path? So this teaching here is about path. He's laying out a path of practice. And so, brief comment on that. Uh, there are different modes of teaching. There's what is called the sheti. Uh, Shet means to explain, and ti is guidance. So it's where you receive guidance by way of explanation. And many of the many lamas, great and not so well known, uh, will come and they'll give teaching. And often it's you know they'll give teaching quite intensively for so, for, for some time, or maybe it's strung out over time. But it's a bunch of teaching and said, okay, good luck. There's a teaching. Hasta la vista. See you later. And they're gone. But now people have received the teaching and then it's up to them to put it into practice, which they do or don't, depending on them. So that's it. You receive the teachings and then the Lama's gone and then you hopefully practice. 
Okay, that's one way of doing it. It's a very common way of doing it. Uh, there's a, but it's not the only way. There's another way, and that's called nyamti. Nyamti. And this is that you're it's teaching together, and that is um, you're teaching people, more like a mother spoon feeding her baby. You don't just kind of pour the whole bowl of baby food in and drown the baby. But you give it spoon by spoon. And like that. And so the nyamti is you give it in little doses and you get evenly with people be able to assimilate it and get nourished by it. Okay, that's nyamti. And then the deepest one is nyamti. And that is you're again giving it little bite, bite size by bite size, but you're actually teaching right from your experience. And you're observing whether your disciples are coming to the level of experience that you yourself have achieved, which is should be authentic if you're really giving that level of teaching. And so... I won't say that what I'm offering here for the next eight weeks is any of those three. It's not quite shetti, not quite nyamti, or nyamti, uh, but it's close to that, and I make no pretense of having this, you know, having experience of everything I'm teaching. Um, Gacha Rinpoche authorized me to teach quite shortly, within a couple of years, of my training quite intensively under his guidance. And I asked him why, because I had not been with him for very long. It's a couple of years. And he said, well... It's what you did for the first 20 years. You brought back out. That's what he said. Uh, he didn't say, what he didn't say is, oh, because you have such profound realization. He didn't say that, for a very good reason. But um, I think the fact that he, I'm, not gonna, I'm going to speculate. Uh, the fact that he authorized me to teach way back, and then not long after that said, whatever I'm teaching, you can teach it. I think he did that because he had confidence that I would do my utmost, my absolute utmost best to pass on the teachings without distortion, with faith, accuracy, without adding my own stuff, without subtracting, to try to pass it on authentically, that this sublime stream of teachings would not be polluted or diminished by having passed through me. I think that's what he had confidence in. And that is actually my highest priority. If I felt I wasn't living up to that, I would, I would be quite happy to stop teaching. It's that important. I don't. It's the highest thing. Highest thing. You don't mess up the teachings. They're just too sacred. And the teachings I'm passing on are so far above you know, anything that I've realized and so forth. So all the more reason. If you know, if I were an Arya Bodhisattva, so I'll, just, I'll teach you from my experience. You know, I don't have to worry about Nagarjuna. I'm, a, I'm an Arya, but not, not the case. So therefore, it's more like receiving a chalice filled with, you know, inexpressible jewels, and you just you pass it on gently, delicately, reverently, and hope that you don't tip anything over, you don't mess it up on the way. So I consider myself to be more like a messenger service, secretary, interpreter, hose, pipe, many analogies come to mind. But I'm here to pass on the teachings. Uh, and it's not only information. If it were information, I would just say go to the website. Or just read this. But there are blessings. There are blessings. And that's, I know to be true. And I have faith, I have reverence, I try to follow the, the wishes of my own gurus. And, uh, and so, by the blessings of the lineage, there's blessing. How much is received? That depends on you know, the faith that one brings to the teachings themselves. So the theme of Guru Yoga, that will, it's about, it, it has to come up. It has to come up. It's one of the preliminaries, one of the indispensable preliminaries, the uncommon preliminaries. Um, but my, my job is really try to get out of the way 
and let the blessing flow through, the clear, accurate mm, teachings flow through. And if you've received authentic teachings by way of this vessel, then I've done my job. Because above all, the refuge isn't the teachings, not the individual who is passing on the teaching. The individual can be important. It is important. But the teachings are above all. So that's that. So. So, first time I've ever led an eight-week retreat on this material. Looking forward to it. Uh, it's uh, extraordinary teaching, great blessing, great clarity, and it lays out a path. It lays out a path that we can follow. You know, and that will become clear. So, you up for one meditation session? Okay, let's do that. Can't let the night go behind. But please find a comfortable position. As you're settling in, I see that some people have yoga mats in the back. Um, so this is just generally an open invitation. Uh, here there is a bit of floor space, not a whole lot, but there's enough. So uh, people have just different physical conditions. Uh, some people back problems and so forth and so on. So just general invitation. I don't need to repeat it because everybody's hearing me say it now. If in any of our sessions you would you find it will be more suitable and, and supportive to your practice to be meditating in the supine position, please do so. When I, years ago when I went into a six-month, quite very strict solitary retreat uh, where I drive 20 minutes down the mountains to a near, near village and go to a public telephone and call up uh, Gyatra de Mache, um, he said, make sure you use make you make use of supine position. Made a real point of it. Make sure you use that. And so I did. I found it helpful. And so that's that. So, oh yeah, in the future I'm gonna bring a um, cell phone. I'm just gonna do this just kind of with my wristwatch. But I'll bring a cell phone little a little timer. The meditation timer. But let's get our feet on the ground. One twenty-four minute session, and we'll call it an evening. Especially as we are just now starting out on our voyage, our expedition, our retreat. I invite you right now to establish the most meaningful motivation you can, and really there is one, and that is bodhicitta. For these teachings, no lesser motivation is adequate. So with the basis of taking refuge, and out of deep, great compassion, arouse the sublime mind, the precious mind of bodhicitta as your motivation for this session and for the time we will spend together over eight weeks.
Then letting your awareness descend into the body, if you feel that you are generally located up in your head, let your awareness descend right down to the ground, where your body is in contact with the, the chair, the cushion, the floor. Bring your awareness down to the sensations of the earth element, the sensations of firmness and solidity. And rest your awareness in a witnessing mode. Just be present with these tactile sensations of your body in contact with the ground, the earth. Let your awareness fill the space of the body like a fragrance filling a room. Be mindfully present throughout the entire tactile field of your body. If you know that certain areas feel tight, as you breathe in, gently focus your attention on those areas that feel constricted. And as you breathe out, surrender your muscles to gravity. Relax deeply. to the face, which is often the magnet of tension showing up in our facial expressions. Soften the muscles around the mouth and the jaws, the temples and the forehead. Let there be a spaciousness between the eyebrows, a softness of all the muscles around the eyes. Soften the eyes themselves. In this way, settle your body in a posture of ease and comfort relaxed and loose. And this is why I invite you to alternate between sitting and supine. If in the sitting position you start to feel tense, your body's in pain, better to be relaxed. Go back into the supine position or sit in a comfortable chair.
insofar as your body does feel relaxed, comfortable. You should find it easy during the short duration of this session to remain still, with no unnecessary movement, just the movement of the breath. With this basis of relaxation and stillness, adopt a posture of vigilance. If you're sitting upright, let your spine be straight, your sternum slightly lifted, your abdominal muscles loose and relaxed, so that when you breathe in, the sensations of the breath go down to the belly, expanding as you inhale, following back as you exhale. Even in the supine position, where your body is utterly relaxed, emulating the posture of a corpse in the Shavasana, psychologically adopt a stance of vigilance, using this posture only for meditation and yoga, never for just relaxing or falling asleep or anything else. And by association, when you slip into the Shavasana, you'll always have the sense, ah, this must be for practice not just for daydreaming. In this way, settle your body in its natural state, balanced between relaxation and vigilance, sustained with stillness. A state of dynamic equipoise. Next we settle the speech in its natural state, which is one of effortless silence, which you've probably achieved already in terms of your outer speech. But it's not so easy to rest in such silence inwardly in terms of the speech of the mind, the inner chit-chat. To facilitate this, we settle the respiration in its natural rhythm which means to allow the breath to flow effortlessly and without constraint.
Cater the breath to settling the respiration is the out-breath. Take advantage of every, each and every exhalation as an opportunity for relaxing more and more deeply in the body as if your breathing out is a sigh of relief, surrendering your muscles to gravity, softening, relaxing with every out With every out-breath, release the breath and continue releasing and releasing without forcefully expelling the breath, just letting it go all the way through to the very end until there's no more breath to let go. It's all flowed out, like water flowing out of glass that's been turned over on its side. With every out-breath, gently, happily, release any thoughts or images that may have come to mind, as if your out-breath is a gentle gust of breeze blowing away dry leaves. As you breathe out, release whatever thoughts come up, and allow, allow them to dissolve back into the space of the mind. Breath by breath, every out-breath. Once you've released the breath fully, there may be a pause, there may be, there may be no pause, either way, simply allow the next breath to flow in of its own accord without pulling it in and without obstructing it in any way. Allow the body to breathe in and out without interference, without regulation, without preference. Breathe egolessly, releasing all control. In this way, we release the energy the turbulent energy that stirs up the mind and catalyzes so many wandering thoughts. So that the inner voice of the mind can naturally settle in effortless silence within.
finally we turn to settling the mind in its natural state, which is initiated with an exercise of will, a decision. A decision to allow ourselves the freedom and the leisure for the short duration of the session to release all concerns, hopes and fears, desires and aversions pertaining to the past and the, pre- and the future and to allow your awareness to come to rest carefree without hope or fear in the present moment. Now is the time for going into retreat from all mundane concerns, mundane desires. Release all grasping involving desire and aversion And in the freedom from grasping, be it ever so temporary, awareness naturally and effortlessly comes to rest in stillness, resting in its own place, holding its own ground. Let your awareness come to rest in stillness and know that it is still. Be aware of awareness free of movement, like a king sitting upon his throne and not moving off it. Let your awareness rest in its own place without being pulled this way or that way by thoughts or memories. And for those moments that awareness is free of grasping and is therefore still, unmoving, you'll find that awareness has another quality and that is it is clear, it is bright, it illuminates, it knows.
rest in that luminous, cognizant stillness of your own awareness. Sustain that stillness of awareness from the ground of ease and relaxation, not constriction or tightening up. like an unflickering candle flame illuminating a room. Let your awareness remain still and bright. But let the light of your awareness illuminate the space of the body, the entire somatic field. as you are aware of this field of tactile sensations. Specifically take note of those sensations corresponding to the in and out breath. And simply note, ever so simply, when the in-breath is long, note that it is long. When the out-breath is long, note that it is long. On occasion, when the in-breath is short, know that it is short. When the out-breath is short, know that it is short. Very simple task. In this approach to mindfulness of breathing, let the primary focus of your attention be on sustaining the stillness of your awareness. And secondarily, even peripherally, be aware of the sensations corresponding to the respiration throughout the entire body. Be aware of the distinction between the stillness of your awareness and the movements of these sensations throughout the body corresponding to the breath. Stillness and motion.
Let's bring the session to a close. Quite a number of years I've been teaching three different approaches to mindfulness of breathing, full body, following the tradition of Asanga, attending to the rise and fall of the abdomen, following a Burmese method from probably the 20th century. Recent but useful. And then following the sensations of the breath of the nostrils, classic Theravada, at least 1,500 years, probably older. Um, but years ago I heard from one Dzogchen Lama, instructions, or I read, I guess, uh, instructions on mindfulness of breathing, where he said, actually, let 80% of your awareness just be resting openly, and only 20% actually focusing on the breath. That was interesting. I kind of was kind of skeptical when I read I thought shamatha is supposed to be single-pointed. That's not single-pointed. That's like 80, 20. What's that? So, give it a whole lot of attention. But, oh, okay, whatever. I was good Theravada when it comes to mindfulness of breathing. And then just continuing practice, continuing practice, and then, you know, really for the last 25 years, really primarily focusing on Dzogchen. It really struck me that if you were going to be practicing mindfulness of breathing with already the anticipation, the intention of venturing into and really immersing yourself in the practice of Mahamudra or Dzogchen, that was really good advice he gave. I'm just going to mildly rephrase it. I don't really think it's different in technique, just the wording be different. And that is that the primary emphasis be on sustaining the stillness of awareness. Sustaining the stillness of awareness, but not just withdrawing from all movement, which is kind of fun. That's called awareness of awareness. Where you're drawing from all movement, just resting in the stillness of awareness. That's cool, but we're not going to go there yet. We're going to do something a bit more subtle. And that is resting in the stillness of awareness while at the same time being aware of movement, the movement of the breath. Right. So you're not following the breath. You're not trying to merge with the breath. You're not tracking the breath. You're not moving around. You know, you're just staying right to where you are, the king on his throne. I'll use that metaphor a number of times. Resting right there, but again, aware of, taking notice of the sensations throughout the, throughout this field. Clearly, the fluctuations in the field. The best way I can say it fluctuations in the somatic field that you know correspond to in-breath, out-breath. And you're aware of them. Aware of them gently rising and falling, rising and falling. But in the midst of all that, the stillness. That turns out to be a very nice segue where you have something to hold on to. Something, okay, I gotcha. In-breath, out-breath, okay, I know. Because we're used to fixating on things, focusing on objects. Gives you something to hold on to. That's good. Something to hold on to, sensations of breath, okay, gotcha. But you're already cultivating this loose, free of grasping, resting awareness in its stillness. And then we'll be gradually moving from there to give you the kind of coming attractions to settling the mind in its natural state, where there it is, very centrally. 
Stillness of awareness, movements of thoughts. Simultaneous stillness of awareness and the awareness of the movements of thoughts. Right? So you've already been prepped for that by attending to the more tangible, coarser, easier to identify sensations of movements of respiration. That's easier. Movement of thoughts, emotions, desires, that's more subtle. But we're preparing for that. And then from there, going into just the awareness of awareness. Down the rabbit hole. Right into awareness itself. And then coming out of the rabbit hole. And then shattering the illusion of the mind itself as being something truly existent, inherently existent. Shattering the reification of the mind. Vipassana. Okay? This is a path. This is a path. Step by step. And getting familiarity, familiarization, getting confident, building. And so that on the layer of this, then you build this. Get confidence. Good. Now, venture here. Get confidence. And so you feel something swelling, and, but you always have that root system, starting with settling your body in its natural state and learning how to breathe. It sounds trivial, and it's not. Especially for us moderners. And now most people are moderners. Tibetans living in India, they're pretty modern. Living in Nepal, they're pretty modern, unless they're way back in the mountains. People living out through China, from you know Australia and so forth, were moderners, were, were driven, you know. It's not the same. It's a very different psychophysiological system that we're bringing to the Dharma in contrast to, let's say, traditional Tibetans living a century ago. I think we really have to take it into account. Because if we bring this bundled up tightness, drivenness, multitasking, caught up in our heads type of way of being in the world, and we take that right into intense meditation, the chances are it will just make us more tight. I know from my own experience, it happens. And so, really big emphasis on this. That sense of relaxing, releasing into a deepening, deepening sense of ease without losing clarity. That's the first challenge. Master that, and then, then it's just, you know, from here to enlightenment. Click, 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 and you're enlightened. It's kind of that theme that runs throughout. Of relaxing more and more deeply and not losing clarity, but in fact, relaxing more and more deeply and seeing clarity going up. Until you're resting in Dhammakaya. And the clarity is manifesting in Sambhogakaya and Dharmakaya without moving. So Dharmakaya is not running all over the place. Dharmakaya is still, right? Timeless, beyond time, beyond movement. And yet the appearances of, of the Rupakaya, Sambhogakaya and Dharmakaya, movement, coming, going, coming, going, simultaneously. So on this little itsy-bitsy baby step into the shallow end of the pool, we're already doing something that has profound ramifications and facsimiles again and again and again on the path, all the way up to Buddhahood itself. The stillness of Dhammakaya and the manifestations, the coming and going, the emanation and withdrawal of Sambhogakaya and Amadakaya. So it's a path. That's what I'm here for. That's what we're here for. So good. Oh, that's okay. Imagine, I'm over jet lag. I've been in Australia for three weeks now. But some of you may not quite be over. So... It's very important to get a good night's sleep, really get caught up in sleep. So this is why, you know, we're not meeting until 9 o'clock, but you have plenty of time, uh, really, just so we can go to bed quickly. If you're if tired, go to bed quickly. And I would give, but of course I have to give you, already have to give you homework. When you finish the whole day, everything's finished, brush your teeth, everything finished. What I would suggest, even if it's only a couple of minutes, get under, under the covers, you're in bed now, the day's all finished, all responsibilities finished, except for one thing. Go into the supine position. Supine position. Arms out like that, straight, pillow under your head. 
and practice what we just did. But especially that final point, just rest in the stillness of your awareness. The day is done. It's kind of like you're ready to die. You know, The life is finished. This one little life of one day is finished. You did everything you needed to do. Gomba zo. You finished your thought. You finished your intention for the day. Nothing more to be done today. Tomorrow's another day, another reincarnation. But at the end of the day, well, then, okay, now relax. And then just rest in the stillness of awareness. Let your body come into the, your awareness come into the body, down to the ground. And just rest there, breathing out, breathing out, breathing out. Until whether it's two minutes later or 20 minutes later, you'll find a certain kind of sleepiness coming in, kind of losing focus, like that. And when you see you kind of, really, sleep is saying, come, come, then switch, switch your posture. In even a symbolic way, if your palms are up, Turn the palms down. If you like to fall asleep on your back, okay, but do something. Which is a symbolic gesture. I was meditating, and I'm not. Now I'm going to fall asleep. And if you like to roll over, do whatever you like. But let the final gesture before you go into the substrate, uh, substrate consciousness, be balancing, clarity, and then have a good night's sleep. Okay? Good. Have a good night's sleep. See you tomorrow morning. <laughs>